Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, my name is Eva Coulson and I'm a pain management clinical pharmacist working on an acute pain service at Cuya Health located in Visalia, California. Today, my colleague and I are going to be chatting about the basics of urine drug screens, or UDSs, and all the reasons we'd like to also include all the reasons that we value and appreciate the information that a UDS can provide. Today, we're going to cover a bunch of the basics, but in the future, we plan to talk about more complex concepts related to urine drug screens. It sounds weird, but pharmacists and our fellow healthcare providers can really learn a lot from these screening tools, and we want to explain to you guys why they're so great. Hi, my name is Vinny Dow. I'm the pain clinical pharmacist practitioner over at the Minneapolis VA Medical Center, part of the Department of Veteran Affairs, Um, and I'm excited to join you, Ava, today to talk about urine drug screens. To start, I was wondering, Ava, could you tell us a little bit more about what a urine drug screen is and kind of what information it provides? Absolutely. So the definition of a UDS from Healthline.com or even anything that you find on the internet is basically a urine drug screen or a UDS is a painless test. It analyzes the urine for the presence of certain illegal drugs and prescription medications. I think in my experience and practice with UDSs, I use it as a tool that's employed to keep our patients safe and protect our healthcare providers and their prescribing practices. Like most tools, UDSs can be used to open up a discussion with patients about what is and what is not working for them, and especially when it comes to controlled substances and the use of opioids and benzodiazepines and potentially the use of illicit substances. But like any tool, I think it's really important as a healthcare provider that you know how to safely utilize the urine drug screen information when it comes back. Depending on which kind of urine drug screen is utilized, there are really two main concerns that we, or two main common ones that we use. The first kind of urine drug screen is an immunoassay. This is one that is used most often because it screens and it screens for the presence of opioids, methamphetamines, and marijuana. This test is pretty cheap to run and it's pretty easy. In fact, many people who have had a urine drug screen prior to starting a new job may probably have had this analysis completed for themselves. The results of this test are a yes or a no. Either the substance is detected or it's not. Now, the second is the confirmatory test with either gas or liquid chromatography using mass spectrometry or mass spec testing. This is used to confirm immunoassay results, and this is a much more extensive test to run, but it also has way cooler and, I think, way more useful information. With the mass spec results, you're actually, as a healthcare provider, can see how the drug is breaking down and be able to differentiate between different opioid compounds. It shows what's metabolizing, how much of the drug is present, and brings me to my first question for you, Dr. Dow. How do drugs break down in the urine, and then what are some of those major metabolites that we should be aware of? Yeah, you know, this is actually one of my favorite questions because it's synonymous to an optical illusion where an image kind of tricks the eye because actually most drugs, they don't break down in the urine. They actually are metabolized when they are in circulation and then excreted into the urine in their final form, Um, you know, and that could be the parent compound or a metabolite or some ratio of each. And that actually makes urine 
an optimal route for sample collection. You know, as silly as it sounds, the anatomical location and sequence of this biological process can help us detect whether adulteration or cheating is present. Before discussing metabolites, we should actually kind of discuss the difference between an initial drug screen or an immunoassay screen versus a secondary confirmation, which is either gas or liquid um, chromatography mass spectrometry. Initial screens, you know, they don't distinguish if a metabolite is detected. It's really just an antibody that binds to something. So you get a positive or a negative result. Really only gas or liquid gas chromatography mass spectrometry identifies whether what those individual molecular agents are based on mass spectrometry. You know, the importance of a metabolite really kind of depends on if your concern is clinical or compliance. And from a clinical standpoint, really understanding the metabolism pathway of various opioids is important, you know, such because drugs such as morphine or codeine, they have significant active metabolites. And the ratio of morphine or codeine in the urine can actually help to predict things like illicit heroin use because heroin as the parent compound actually doesn't stay in its parent compound for long once it enters the circulation. And knowing these metabolites and knowing the metabolites of other types of drugs, prescription or over-the-counter, can really help to prevent a false assumption of illicit use if you get a positive um, urine drug screen. And, you know, we should remember things that like the benzodiazepine pathway or the benzodiazepine immunoassay screen really only detects benzodiazepines in the diazepam pathway. And so it really excludes common benzodiazepines like clonazepam, alprazolam, lorazepam, triazolam, and midazolam. And that's where kind of that secondary confirmation really comes uh, in handy. You know, now that we know a little bit more kind of about urine drug screens, Ava, what can you tell us about, you know, who should receive a urine drug screen, how often they get screened and why? Great question. I would say in short, following the CDC guidelines, all patients on long-term opioid therapy should have periodic urine drug screen testing is what they recommend. In the tips section of the UDS for patients, providers are encouraged to establish a really trusting relationship with their patient. So when we're thinking about who should get a UDS and how often they should get screened, anybody who's on long-term opioid therapy And then the provider really should have a relationship set up in the beginning uh, to allow that patient to feel comfortable with receiving urine drug screens and be expecting that throughout their course of therapy. I think it's really important to establish trust. And when I talk to patients about how this is a safety net for both of us, I think that's kind of a good way to open up the conversation for why urine drug screens are important. So both parties are really recognizing that and on board with it. I remind my patients that screening them will provide us both with the information um, to keep responsibly prescribing these medications and to allow the provider to continue writing for these medications. I think in the setting, expectations can be really helpful. For example, if I'm helping a provider to initiate a patient on an opioid regimen that I suspect is going to take longer or the patient's going to be on it longer than 30 days, I want to have that patient sign or encourage that patient to sign a pain contract. And we clearly go over the urine drug screening policy and that will happen before we start any opioid therapy and then periodically throughout their course of being prescribed opioid medications. Some other tips that I thought were really good 
included going over how much UDSs can cost because sometimes patients are required to pay those out of pocket. Um, and so making sure that they're aware of that um, with their insurance. Um, and then also really upfront, giving patients a safe space to report what they think will result in their urine drug screen can be very helpful. You want to make sure that the patient feels comfortable with saying, you know, like this is going to show up on a urine drug screen. Um, and so that way the provider is protected and they also can kind of advocate for their patient. In summation, I think everyone on long-term therapy of opioid medications should really be getting urine drug screens. Now, once you do the urine drug screen and establish a policy, what would you say you should do with the results when they come back? I think for me, if it's an initial drug screen, then I typically do the following. You know, I'll determine if the results are as expected. Are there any discrepancies? Are there any surprises? Is there an explanation? If there is a discrepancy or surprise, is there an explanation um, to why the results are as they are? And sometimes there's an explanation based on what the patient has disclosed. And sometimes there's an explanation based on something that's undisclosed because you maybe um, you as a provider found it in a chart review. I will order a confirmation if there is a discrepancy or if there's a confounding scenario. And so an example of this is with the initial opioid screen, it's usually a positive or negative result. But as we know, natural opioids, they will tend to typically result in a positive uh, screen. Semi-synthetic opioids, they may or may not result in a positive screen. And then typically synthetic opioids, and examples of these are like methadone, tramadol, fentanyl, they will not ping positive in an opioid initial screen. And so really ordering that confirmation can help eliminate the likelihood of false uh, negatives. And ordering a confirmation also helps because an opioid screen is a generic screen. There could be multiple opioids that are contributing to a positive result. So a patient could be using multiple opioids. Um, so ordering a confirmation will help to kind of tease it out to determine exactly which opioids are being taken and how many different ones are being taken. I'll definitely assess the patient safety and kind of the urgency of any action that is needed. So what kind of risk is the patient at at the moment and what kind of urgency is required to adjust the patient's medication regimen to ensure their safety? And then I have an open discussion with the patient of the results definitely give the patient a chance to kind of explain any results that are found. And if necessary, if you know, if you can't resolve a discrepancy after speaking with the patient, then you can repeat a urine drug screen if necessary. I work with our healthcare team to determine if continued prescribing is appropriate. There's really no one size fits all approach. A key that I found in my practice is really to explain the monitoring procedures ahead of time to the patient when the patient is prescribed opioids. Um, they should never be surprised by the need to de-prescribe or for a request for a urine drug screen. You know, I know as with anything in else in healthcare, urine drug screens can be open to interpretation. I don't know, Ava, could you share in your experience, what are some common pitfalls or false positives that can result with a urine drug screen? I love this question. And I think it's something that kind of comes up a lot. I have a story to illustrate my point. I have a friend who recently was applying to get some life insurance and they needed to have a simple urine drug immunoassay run. She called me a few weeks after and asked if lidocaine could cause a positive urine drug screen. And I told her no. And she told me about how she had recently had a clinic procedure and that was literally the only medication that she had been on in the month before this urine drug screen. But she was confused because her urine drug screen they had reported had came back positive for opioids. 
I was asking her some questions and got around to asking her, have you ever eaten poppy seeds? And she said, ironically enough, I've been trying these new homemade almond poppy seed muffins that her husband had been making. And she said she had been devouring them. And I told her, you know, poppy seeds can potentially be detected as an opioid in the urine drug screen, especially in the simple analysis. And she told me she had no idea. So that information was helpful for her. But I think a lot of times our healthcare providers get some results back in the urine drug screens that may or may not be false positives or maybe something that we're not expecting. And so it's really important that we're aware of like how these medications break down. And to Dr. Dow's point, like thanks for talking about how it's really important to do that confirmatory testing. Because there's been a lot of stories about how patients have had a false positive and how it's been assumed that it's inappropriate medication use. But when you kind of do some more exploring, there might be something else that's going on. Now, there's also the other side where maybe their patient is, you know, have something going on. Um, That confirmatory testing really gives us a lot of information on how much opioid we should be expecting, what kind of metabolites we should be expecting. So we've talked a little bit about the poppy seed consumption, which can cause a false positive with opioids on a urine drug screen, but immunoassays can also show false positives for quinolone antibiotics and some even over-the-counter medications when patients have taken them. So I think it's important that with an immunoassay, again, trying to make sure that you understand what should and should not, or what the limitations of your test are. Because again, with immunoassays, some synthetic opioids can be missed. And I've also seen immunoassays that have missed picking up on methadone, hydrocodone, even oxycodone. Now, some of the more obscure false positives that I found have been venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine that have shown up as a positive for PCP or phenylcycline. When you go to look up on the internet what could potentially cause a false positive, there are hundreds of different case reports, but really it comes down to working with your lab, really understanding what the dynamics and what the limitations are with your lab results. And in the notes section of this podcast, I'd like to include some resources that you might start at if you're trying to interpret a UDS result that may seem a little bit confusing or you know may not be it like may be a point of trying to advocate for your patient. Now, with that, how do you think we could protect our patients when these results come back? Do you have any ideas? I think, I think honestly, one of the best way to protect our patients is to really do what we can to keep these results anonymous, you know, allow the patient opportunity of anonymity at their next visit when maybe we plan to discuss this, these results. And that's because patients often come into appointments with maybe a family member or a friend. This really gives the patient kind of a heads up to kind of decide who they want to be in this room with them when this discussion occurs. Definitely when during the collection process, there should be a very, very secluded area for collection. I also think that explaining the situation to the patient to identify why it's important that we are doing these urine drug screens and the risks involved with certain positive or negative results and kind of really opening up and expanding into kind of the treatment options then that are going forward is really important 
to work with the patient after you get a result from a urine drug screen. Definitely, there will be times when we need to offer alternatives, and this may include medication-assisted therapy or tapers, and this really addresses the issue of safety. I think it's important to know the rules within your facility regarding disclosure to law enforcement or employers, and really even know the difference between law enforcement and first responders. There will be times when you don't necessarily or should be disclosing results to law enforcement for criminal purposes, But in terms of first responders, there could be life-threatening emergency issues where they need to identify what a certain substance may be. Now, most first responders will have on-site rapid testing kits, but that may not be the case. So um, there is some judgment there that you will have to make. You want to discuss the importance of safety and modify any healthcare plans appropriately with the patient. And, you know, we have patients who are considered vulnerable patients, and that means that they have a caregiver that they depend on who either could be an enabler, supplying them with illicit substances, or a diverter, using the patient's uh, controlled substances. Now, for our terminally ill patients, if for cancer pain, if that's if they're diverting opioids, that means suboptimal pain management for the patient. So definitely keeping an eye out for that and informing the proper authorities or the proper programs um, when you identify a vulnerable patient because they may be afraid to speak up because they are dependent on their caregiver. And then definitely work with your privacy department and social service and healthcare teams for more complex concerns. And a good example of that is when there's identified illicit use in patients who are under age. I think that's a very sensitive demographic. And so you definitely wanna know the rules and who to work with in regards to um, those scenarios. You know, and we live in a world of increasing scrutiny and liability. Could you share, Ava, how you as a practitioner can protect yourself when urine drug screen results come back? Absolutely. I think you brought up some really great points. And I think the thing that I would want to emphasize the most is the importance of establishing expectations in the very beginning of prescribing any kind of medication that has a diversion potential or would show up on a urine drug screen. I think establishing pain expectations with the utilization of a pain contract is a great first step. You can find some awesome examples of pain contracts simply by doing an internet search and looking for the components of other people's pain contracts that have been included and finding some resources that other providers and even institutions have utilized and put in into practice. I honestly think pain contracts establish what is and what is not expected from a patient and from a healthcare provider. And I think that that is one of the best ways that healthcare providers can protect themselves and really eventually and ideally always advocate for their patient. Now with that, I think we're going to wrap up this one-on-one course on urine drug screens. And if you want to dive deeper, be looking for a more in-depth discussion on urine drug screens in the future. I really want to thank Dr. Dow for joining me today. And if you haven't before, I would encourage you to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and Clinical Pharmacy Resources, plus a bunch more. Thank you again for tuning in for this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.